0: Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk live in the Washington, D.C. area Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio.
1: Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and
2: Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ.
1: And as always, technology is
2: on the move.
1: Coming up on today's show, drone fireworks, a thing for July 4th's past and probably for this year, too. We'll give you some tips for communicating in today's digital world for sale, cheap, one FBI surveillance van and how to spot a webcam in your airbnb
2: this week we're going to feature uh, cecil green he is the co-founder of texas instruments is it cecil or cecil Cecil. you know he's a brit could Could they pronounce it cecil oh then it's cecil could be cecil green I think we better check that. Jim. I think we should. I think, uh, why don't we have the research department check that research. out when we... When you mean we, me? Yes, exactly. Okay. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. a letter in your mailbox.
1: Glad to see he dragged himself out of the gutter yeah, and came to I'm work today.
2: certainly glad he did. We got an email from Doug in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dear uh, Dr. shirts and Jim, can Who? you explain the following occurrence? Yeah, You won't, normally I'm just doc- yeah. Uh I had a problem with my computer and the producers of the program requested me to do a trace and send the log of the incident to them. Then they wanted me to use my Microsoft File Explorer to log into their FTP site and transfer the file. I had no idea that the internet File Explorer could be used for, you know, connecting to the internet. Are there any other interesting things that the File Explorer could do? Well, uh, Doug, it is a clever way to connect to a remote FTP site, file transfer protocol site, where you want to upload things. And what you simply have to do if you want your, what they gave you the instructions to do is you have to map what's called an external hard drive. And so you say, you basically um, right-click on the button, or you, you, you go to you go to my computer, right-click on the button, you'll say map an external drive, and then you put in the web address of the FTP site and then it will ask you for the username and the password if it's password protected and then you click, click enter and then it will assign a drive letter to it and then when you are in the File Explorer you can actually look at the files in the FTP site. It becomes just like it's on your computer because you've mapped an external site to the local site and then you can just take and copy a file from your computer to the FTP site very easily. But there are a few other things that File Explorer can do. I mean, if you want to open it up quickly, you can just hit two keys, Windows plus E, and the File Explorer will open up. It's also, you can also use the Send To menu. If you highlight a file or highlight a group of files, right-click on the mouse, and you've got a different, different options to send those group of files or one file. You could send it to a Documents folder. You could create a zip file, a compressed file, like you could take 10 files, put them into a zip format and then you could send that zip format to somebody or and you you could and then you can send the uh, the item as an email attachment. So it becomes very nice uh, nice way to transfer files. It also has advanced search. You know, have you ever you're on your computer and it's hard to find stuff? Yeah. So if you go to search click you click on the advanced search button and they've got all sorts of options Boolean operators, parameters and you can pick, you know, you want it between these dates, you want this kind of file, you want a file which is um, only within a certain size range, what, you've got all sorts of options, or you can say you want files where the date modified is within a date range, so you can pick all of that, and then you can... Do the search, and uh, and you'll you'll be able to hone down on the files fairly quickly. And the nice thing is, you can pin that search to the Start button, so next time you have to search for files, you it's right there on your Start button. You can just click on it, and it'll do the search. You don't have to recreate the search. You can also use <clears throat> there are also a lot of filters uh, for finding files. You can and you'll see all the filters that are listed across the across the ribbon at the top, which is one of the nice things of the uh, File Explorer in Windows 10. And you can group files. So like you could say, I'd like to group all of the files that are in a certain size range or in a certain date range, and you can group them together. And, and then it makes it easier to find a file. So those are just a few of the things, but it's really a nice program, Windows File Explorer, especially the one in Windows 10. We got an email from Charlie in Kansas. They're and Jim. I read an article last night about... Two hard drives that were put in a RAID 0 configuration to speed up the disk access. They said RAID 0 can speed up your read and write by as much as 50%. Mm. But they said it's a little risky, but they didn't explain why. Can you explain? Charlie in Kansas. Well, RAID, Charlie stands for... For uh, RAID stands for a redundant array of independent disks. That's what it stands for. Redundant array of independent disks. I so you, knew you'd know that. Yeah. So you put. You, I
1: thought it was bug spray.
2: No, 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 no. Not in this case. Okay. And so in this case, you have a RAID array of, of two disks. Now, if you want to have maximum write speed, you can you can basically write. Every time you save to the two hard drives, you can write part of it to hard drive number one and part of it to hard drive number two. In other words, you stripe it across the two hard drives and you'll, and you'll actually save much quicker because you're spreading it across two drives. The problem is if one drive fails, you lose all the data because it's been striped. So one drive fails, you lose everything. So your, your risks are, are doubled in terms of failure. You never want to use RAID 0 with two drives. You want to use RAID 1, and that's the mirroring mode. Now, that means you write to both drives at the same time. So if one drive goes out, it doesn't matter because the other drive has all the data, and you simply swap out the drive that failed, put in a new drive, and all the data from the drive that survived will just copy over to the first drive, and you're, and you're good to go. So RAID 2 is like always having a backup. I mean RAID one. So, there are also RAID like five. There are different levels of RAID. Like you, you, you could have six disks. You could have RAID five, and then you're striping it across all five arrays. It it does write faster, but you do it in a way so there's redundancy. So so if you lose any one drive, you can reconstruct it. Some some of them, if you could lose two drives, you could reconstruct it. So there are a lot. This is all designed to make the storage media more reliable ah. and safer. So, I would never, ever recommend RAID Zero. No, never. Never. Ever. No. We got an email from David in New York Dear Doc and Jim, I just got a new iPhone 11. Oh. Oh, gee, with I wonder face, who else uh, yeah. has
1: a new iPhone 11. With <laughs> Face
2: ID. Who could that be? That's right. And I travel a lot. And, you know, sometimes at, at these border crossings, I don't want them to be uh, open my phone with my face. Well, if if you're somewhere like at a border check or at a party where you don't think your face or thumbprint could be used against your will to unlock your iPhone, this is a problem at these border checks. And it turns out that if they can unlock your iPhone with Face ID, it's really not covered by the law, because you're, they're not requiring you to give a password, and then they can just look whatever's in your iPhone. Mm-hmm.
1: When so, you say, "I know what you mean by yeah. opening your iPhone with your face," but yeah. it sounds potentially violent. Yeah. Opening yeah. your yeah. phone you, you, with your you, face,
2: you basically just look at it. And it's got face recognition. Oh, I just, I just, I just looked at my phone and it unlocked. How you, convenient!
1: I haven't set that up on mine.
2: Uh, so, so what you can do is, if you want to disable it, you can press the the button on the right. And the uh, which is the sort of the on/ off button and then the, the volume button two volume buttons are on the left do the volume up so you hold down the volume up and the on/ off button hold those down for you know uh, a few seconds and and then it will either vibrate or else the 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 screen will come up that says you want to shut off the phone and then at that point it's locked you could just hit the on/ off button again and that screen will go away and now if anybody wants to get into your phone they got to put in the code. And they don't actually have any right to force you to give them the code.
1: Mm -hmm. But if you're in Mexico... You know they don't need no stinking badges.
2: No, they don't. Yeah, you know, they, they, do they, they 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 might make you do it. They might make you do it. I mean, so I mean, you you could be, I mean, this face rec you could be at a party and fall asleep, and somebody could just open your phone with your face, and then boom, they could look through everything. So it's it's dangerous.
1: So the the face recognition thing is that only on the eleven, or can you do that on earlier models? It's on
2: the ten it's and the, the eleven. List. I
1: could do it with mine. I don't I don't want to do it with mine. You have a ten? I do have a ten.
2: Yeah, You didn't w- know that? I beat you. For a, for a short while when in this, history, you, I had a
1: better phone see, than you.
2: See, when they had the, the home button, they used your fingerprint. Fingerprint. Yes. For the ID. Right. When they eliminated the phone button, they couldn't take your fingerprint. That's so right. they had to replace it with your face. Ah. See, that was the thing. And gotcha. So you probably, did you set up the fingerprint? On your- I never set.
1: Well, so the, the last phone I had, which was a 6S, because we both had the 6S. Something happened early on in that phone's life, and you the the isn't the 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 home button uh, somehow connected to the um, the uh, lightning plug?
2: I don't isn't think this, so.
1: Well, there something something happened, or maybe it was the screen was replaced. Something happened, and once they do that, oh. the the home button isn't able to do the fingerprint identification. So thing. I so I use
2: I use the, the fingerprint on my success uh, all the time. I didn't. I used it all the time. I, I didn't so, know do that. But, you know, whenever I'm crossing but, a border, I'll, 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 I'll turn this off. I'm going to make you know? a
1: disclosure here. Yes. I don't have fingerprints. So there's no way I can okay. use Okay.
2: Yeah, it. that's very good. Yeah. And so so the thing is there, there have been court cases where the government cannot force you to incriminate yourself by giving them a code. I didn't know that. Yeah. On the other hand, if they can hold the phone in front of you and, just, and it opens up with just your face – there's nothing protecting you.
1: Speaking of iPhones, did you hear the latest out of Baltimore? and Catherine Pugh, you're aware of that mess. The mayor who was arrested. We've talked about her, right? Uh-huh, yeah. so, uh huh. So it came out yesterday. They talk about the uh, the sentence recommendations for her when they when the feds busted into her house and started uh, uh, <coughs> you know uh, accumulating boxes and evidence and everything. They asked for her cell phone. So, so she gave them her city cell phone. They said, No, 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 no. We want your personal cell phone. Well, it's not here. It's at my sister's in Philadelphia. One of the agents that dials her number into the phone and dials, and they hear her phone ring. She t- she tucked it under the pillow when they kicked the door in. <laughs> said, "Oh, so what's that? It's ringing under the pillow."
2: <laughs>
1: anyway, but see, they
2: they cannot make her give them the password,
1: but they can make her give them the phone. <clears throat> yeah. if they've
2: got a warrant. Right? That's right. If they have a warrant, and then and then you have the big. Fight whether Apple and Apple's refused to help yeah. law inform, we've, enforcement we've break into about phones. That. Yeah, right. yeah. So, but if she had on face recognition, they would just get the phone and point it at her face, and she couldn't stop them. Uh, so that's always Thus, an issue. Thus, because
1: of all the criminal activity I'm involved in, yeah. I don't want to set up face you, recognition you've just on got, my phone. you
2: phone. You, Jim, you've got to be careful. I you, do. You've, you've got. You've got. You've got to be careful for Thank sure. Thank you for the advice. Doc. Yeah, we got an email from Alan in Missouri. Dear Doc and Jim, I am shocked at how much information there is about me on the web. Is there anything that I can do to remove this information, Alan in Missouri?
1: I like the passion in your voice.
2: (laughs) Well, Alan, people finder sites have got lots and lots of information around you. They often have your address, your phone number, your email, your age. they got all your your kids, your father, your whole family tree. They even include data from court documents and other public and government records. Now. The common people finders include White Pages, Spokio, Verified, and other similar sites. Now, these sites get some data from your social media, but it comes from all sorts of other public data that's available to you. In addition, they buy data. For instance, like like maybe you send in your warranty information on, uh, say, a new microwave. Mm -hmm. Companies will sell that data unless they say explicitly they're not going to they're not going share it with a third party well, you
1: need to when you when you register things yeah. on the internet yeah. you need to read those things very carefully yeah. because they do offer you an opt out on those things
2: or else you enter a sweepstakes that is yeah, that information is shared everywhere it
1: is it, it absolutely that is real right. and is. so
2: and so they'll they'll gather all that stuff now you can go to many of these sites and you can Opt out. It's a manual process, and they make it very complicated. They make a click here, click there. I mean, they, they yes. really make it complicated. steps involved. Like because they don't want you to do it. So like at White Pages, um, so no, Spokeo is the simplest. You simply find your profile page and go to spokeo.com slash opt out, and then you type or paste in a link with your email address so they can confirm it. And they'll take the data out for mm-hmm. you fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, at White Pages, you have to paste a URL to your profile uh, on the um, suppression request page. You have to type why you want the information repressed or taken off. Then you have to provide your phone number to them. Wow. Think about that. Now, yeah. You know, you think about Well, yeah, yeah. yeah you so know, they get you, another piece of yeah, information. Yeah, yeah. Them. You're talking to a data provider. Give them your phone number. And then they call you with a code. You'll get a call from a robot with a code, and then you have to put that code back in on the website, and then they'll take you out. Mm-hmm. Or 411.info, they actually charge you a fee if you want to run and remove your information. See, nobody says that they, that they don't have to, so you'll, they'll do it for a fee. Now, there is a service called Delete Me. <laughs> now, Delete Me has instructions for a handful of the most common sites. You can go there and you can read the instructions on de- Delete Me, and they'll, they'll they'll walk you through how to get off of these sites. It takes, from what I've been reading, twenty about twenty minutes to get off each one of these sites because you have got to go through a lot of different steps. But Delete Me has a paid service where they will remove your name from thirty eight common sites. Now And they'll keep checking back on a continuing basis, and you can pay them $10.79 a month, and they'll keep your name off of those sites in, in perpetuity. You
1: ever wonder why they come with these crazy dollar amounts, $10.79? Yeah,
2: I don't know why they do that. Or you could just pay $129 a year. What no, I'm thanks. thinking, I would never get the – what I would do, I would do it for one month. And get everything taken off. Then I would go back maybe in six months and sign up for another month mm-hmm. because it, it's not like the data is going to be coming on that much faster. Right. You know, so. But anyway, that is not a bad and you can just and you just go to joindeleteme.com and. And they'll take you off the most most of the sites. That seemed to me the simplest way to do it. If you want somebody else to do the job for you,
1: delete me. I believe the mafia has a program called delete me.
2: Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very true. But, but that that deletion is is more permanent than this deletion. <laughs> it involves a car trunk. That's and right. Garbage bags. That, exactly. Yes. Now, we got uh, we got an email from uh, Rajiv in New Jelly, India. Dear Doc and Jim, I want to transfer some very, very large files uh, around a gigabyte range. What are my options? Enjoy the podcast here in India, Rajiv. Well, we use a couple of methods to transfer files, Rajiv. We use Dropbox, and then we, we use WeTransfer. So Dropbox has a... Um, you know you can you can get a free account with Dropbox, which I which actually I have, and you and you can get a paid account if you want to increase the size. And what you do is, Dropbox is just linked to the um, to the um, to your computer, the files in your computer, and you can then synchronize one of your subdirectories with Dropbox. You just copy the file of that subdirectory, and boom, it's uploaded to Dropbox. Then once it's in the cloud at, in Dropbox, you can right click on it and you can put share, and it will create a link which is a very complicated kind of link. You can send that link to somebody, and when they click on it, it will go straight to that file, and they can download it. <clears throat> it's really quite easy to do. You could share a subdirectory. You could share a file. And so that's a very easy – I do that a lot. And we've got other people who, who transfer really big files. They use WeTransfer, <clears throat> and that's basically a, a file-sharing site. And you can actually use this for free, and they'll store your files for two weeks. You can upload all the files that you want to share, and they'll stay on the file if you're not paying a fee for two weeks, and then the, and then they'll delete them. And then you simply um, you simply share a link, a WeTransfer link, and you send that link by email to someone, and they can transfer the file. So both of those work really well. And when you got a giant file to send. That's usually the best way to go because there are maximum file sizes that many of these, like uh, many of the email systems, won't take a a file more than uh, 20 megabytes or 10 megabytes. And if you've got really a file that's huge, you're going to have to upload it to the cloud and then send the link. Listen, we love your emails. You indeed. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're
1: listening to Tech <clears throat> Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2. And if you'd like to listen to us out in horse and wine country in Loudoun County, it's 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. And if you'd like to watch us do the program, download the Periscope device to your app to your device. I always make that backwards. And follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
2: He was suggested by Bob in Maryland, one of our listeners, and I had actually featured Cecil Green back in 2013, but I thought it was time to bring him up to the decks again. It's been quite a while. Mm -hmm. Cecil Howard Green was a geophysicist who was co founder of Texas Instruments. Now, Cecil Green was born August 6, 1900 in Whitefield, England. Cecil Green.
1: I'm looking that up right now. I've I've fallen down. I I was too busy cracking jokes during the mailbag. Maybe maybe
2: I'll just do Cecil Green. I
1: think that's probably how. Okay.
2: Green and his family migrated to Nova Scotia and then to Toronto, Canada, and then finally to San Francisco. And in 1906, he witnessed the first earthquake there in San Francisco at six years old. That was his introduction to America. Now, the family moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, where Green attended the University of British Columbia for two years. And then he transferred to MIT, where he earned a B.S. in electrical engineering in 1923 and a master's in electrical engineering in 1924. Uh, He decided not to go on and get his doctorate. He just wanted to hit the field and start working, Mm -hmm. make a little dough. So for six years, he worked as an engineer for various electronics companies, General Electric... Raytheon, Wireless Speciality and Federal Telegraph. And he got his big break in 1930. He accepted a job in Oklahoma from Eugene McDermott as the chief seismographic field crew, chief of the of a seismographic field crew for the Geophysical Services Incorporated. Now, this particular what he was doing they were basically using uh, you know using sound waves to locate oil formations that's what they were doing they were oil prospecting-huh now founded in May of 1930 <clears throat> GSI which is geophysical services was one of the first prospecting companies established to perform reflection seismic exploration for petroleum. What they do is they shoot a sound wave down and then the sound wave bounces back from different objects that are underground like rocks or oil and by looking at the waveform that comes back they can reconstruct what's underground and they can identify uh, they can identify formations that look like they might contain oil In 1941 Green and three partners of his bought GSI when they heard the owner's plan to sell it. Now, Green borrowed money. He took out a mortgage on his house. He even committed his and his wife's insurance policies as collateral. They scraped together everything they could do to buy his share of of the company, GSI. The deal closed December 6, 1941, the day before Pearl Harbor was bombed. It was really kind of a bad for technology there. Yeah, yeah. Now, GSI developed the towed magnetometer for oil exploration where they would basically – it was an array and they would pull it over the earth and they would – they could reconstruct um, the shapes of things underground based on their magnetic behavior. This turned out to not work very well for oil. But you know what it was useful for? Finding submarines. That's interesting. So what they did is that they towed this array behind the submarine, or behind a or be or they towed the array be, you know behind a battleship, uh-huh. and then they could image in the water and they could see submarines based on their magnetic properties. So it was so they could get an image based on 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 basically magnetic. So it was a it was like a phased array that they would tow. And so it was probably, at that time, it was probably a very highly classified application. In 1951, the company changed its name to Texas Instruments Incorporated, TI, and GSI became a wholly owned subsidiary of TI. Eventually, Green served as vice president, president, and chairman of GSI. He was a head
1: dude in charge.
2: He was a head dude. There's no doubt about it. In, in, In 1952, TI purchased a license to manufacture transistors from Western Electric. Now if you remember the transistor had been invented in, in the, around 46 or 47 at Bell Labs and Bell Labs was not allowed to keep technology because of the antitrust agreement so they had to they had to sell it without making a profit on technology that they developed. They could only keep telecom technology. So <clears throat> Western Electric, Purchased the license to manufacture transistors, and TI purchased that from Western Electric. TI created the Semiconductor Products Division in 18 months. In 1954, TI designed and manufactured the first transistor radio. There you go. It was a, there you go. But it was and all... Many
1: people are probably listening today on transistor radios. It could be. Because it is cutting edge. It is right. cutting edge.
2: And, yes. you know, but this is, this wasn't an integrated circuit. This is like transistors stuck into a board. Then you'd have resistors there and capacitors. You'd have whole circuits on circuit boards. But it was very light because you, com- compared to what they had before, because they didn't, they didn't have to use vacuum tubes. Mm-hmm. And a transistor, you know, is, uh, is about the size of a P yep. in, th- in those days compared to a vacuum tube which is the size of a pickle, and so yes. you know, and so and so he could make it much uh, much smaller. Plus, um, plus uh, transistors didn't generate much heat. The Regency TR1 used germanium transistors rather than silicon transistors because at that time silicon transistors were much much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Now, germanium transistors were not really as efficient as silicon, but but the technology hadn't evolved yet, and they were they were just uh, sort of developing. Silicon transistors at the time. Now there was a Texas Instrument researcher, Jack Kelly, who invented. Jack the Kilby, f-
1: we've talked about him, Jack right? Kilby, Is yeah, Jack, Jack St Clair K- Kilby, right?
2: Yeah, Jack Kilby. Yeah, we we talked about him. He invented the first integrated circuit or transistorized logic circuit in September 12 fifty eight. See, this was the thing: um, transistors were made out of silicon or germanium, and so Jack figured, well, if I could make capacitors out of the same material and you could do that by just putting down an oxide and put metal on top you could have an MOS you know device that would act like a capacitor and then you could make very thin metal strips that would act like resistors so if you could use a combination of oxides metals and you know and junctions which form the transistors to form entire circuits you could make an integrated circuit so Jack Kilby started working on this thing and uh, and, and and what he did now, this is this is what happens a lot at TI because I'd, I'd worked with TI. He said, you know, they they were going out. There was a he had just started there, and there was a big Christmas break, and he didn't have any leave, so he had to work through Christmas, and nobody was there, and so he had the whole lab to himself. So he worked on this integrated circuit over Christmas, and. Uh, and he basically, um, you know, he basically completed the whole thing. And they, they basically had a finish, he, he sort of invented, he got the basic ideas, but then he had to actually package it and, you know, and sell it. And they, they had to patent the thing. And he actually completed the first solid integrated circuit September 12th of 1958. Okay. So this, this was a big breakthrough. Now. T.I. Uh, was headquartered in Dallas, Texas. In 2004, they had a $12 billion revenue with $10 billion in semiconductors, and they had more than 34,000 employees worldwide. Now, Green was elected to a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1970. The growth of T.I. made Green a wealthy man. He and his wife Ida quickly set about giving the wealth away. They contributed more than two hundred million dollars to education and medicine. For instance, there's this one building at MIT called the Green Building, which which he And it's not green. It's not green, but but he and he donated it. Right. He died in two thousand and three at age tw- at the age of hundred and two. Mm. And at age ninety-one, in nineteen ninety one, he was given an honorary knighthood by Queen Elizabeth II.
1: Interesting. So I, I I have not been able to see exactly how he pronounces his name, but in doing a little uh, researching here, it seems like that is just the way where it, it, when an e falls right after a consonant, in, in if you're a Brit, you pronounce it Cecil. Cecil. So, so, well, I so think
2: ses- I think we're just going to go with that. We'll
1: go with that. So Germanium, not to be comf- uh-huh. confused with geranium.
2: Yes. Right. No, no. That's a rock, isn't it? Germanium. It's a semiconductor.
1: But but it's 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 an element. Yeah, and, Jim- and it's, and it's in its natural form. It's it's a, it's kind of a rock, right?
2: Yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a crystal. It's
1: a crystal. Okay, so I mean,
2: it, it's a crystal that you know it has a periodic pattern like any crystal.
1: Do you find it in nature somewhere, or? Do you mine for germanium, or, or, or how how do you find this stuff? Do you know? I, I'm I'm sort of I'm, I'm stumbling into a Wikipedia hole so here. So even
2: even silicon is a crystal. Yeah, I mean g- germanium is a, is an element that will grow in a periodic structure like a, like a um you know and make a crystal, and that um, and also silicon will grow as a crystal. Mm-hmm. And so you you use these in their crystalline state. And the properties of the semiconductor are derived by the periodic structure of the crystal. That's how the semiconductors actually get their magic. And that's why they're called semiconductors, because the electrons that are bound to a particular site and can't move, those are the valence electrons, so they, they're in the valence band, and then there's a conduction band where electrons that have gotten loose and they can move through the thing. Mm-hmm. And the energy difference between the conduction band and the valence band is the band gap of the material... And so germanium and uh, silicon have different band gaps, but their periodic structure is what gives them the magic properties. Ah, So it is an element that grows in in a periodic crystal-like structure.
1: So did you – when you were a kid, did you have a transistor radio?
2: Uh, Yeah, I did.
1: Did you ever take it apart?
2: Uh, well I, I had one of these ones as a little point contact transistor and you kind of move it around to tune it
1: I'd never seen one of those
2: yeah they, you can do that you, you that was those the first transistor radios you, you just can take a uh, like a metal point and put it on a piece of germanium and that point no serves kidding. as the transistor and you can kind of move it around and the circuit will tune to different radio stations I
1: had no idea yeah. see i I had one as a kid and I think it's one of the reasons why I got in, interested in this whole mess that uh-huh. we're doing here today was I would fall asleep with it under my pillow and listen to far off radio stations or yes. the Orioles games at night, and I would, that would fascinate me that at night you could pick up all of these stations around the United States That's that weren't right. anywhere close to to where where you are. That's right, and you know, and we would go to the beach, and I I learned that uh, AM signals also propagate <laughs> through the water, especially during daytime. Mm-hmm. So if you go to Ocean City, Rehoboth, the Delaware mm-hmm. beaches. You can pick up the New York stations, the 50,000-watt stations, like like you're in New York. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. So. You
2: know, I just use the internet now. I just stream everything over the internet. It just, it just, it totally takes it. I do too. It takes the fun out of it in, the, it, end, in a sense. Well,
1: it does. You're right. It does it in a sense. And now it's a little bit different because now that stations are, are have gone from analog to digital, it's uh-huh. harder to DX at night. And that's yeah. what it's called is listening uh-huh. to far off stations. Uh-huh. But it's harder to do that now because you either have a signal or you don't with digital.
2: Yep. Right. That's right. That's exactly right.
1: There yeah. you go. All right. There you yeah. go. And unauthorized sidebar. Thank you for indulging okay. me, Doc. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming
0: up in a moment.
3: Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Shirts. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you, thank
2: you. Please be seated. Please, be, you, We're going to pass out your germanium transistor soon. Just wait a minute. The silicon, silicon transistor. They really want to see a transistor. I they can, do. I can, I can, I'm just, glad you brought one with it. you. Yeah, you know, I should have brought. I've got a whole uh, integrated circuit kit that shows. I'm integrated not shocked circuit. at this. News. Yeah, I should maybe I should have brought that. Some so other So early. This is not just a class, a, no. a radio show. It's a classroom of the airways, yes. and that means we have to assess whether our class has been listening, and we do that with a pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining in one of our dining rooms, and you will also get an A plus for today's show. Earlier in the show, I talked about Cecil. Cecil Howard Cecil. Gre- Cecil Cecil Howard Green, he was co-founder of Texas Instruments. Now, when they were uh, when the transistor came out and they actually had the use to make had the rights to make transistors, they produced the first transistor radio. What kind of transistors were in that first transistor radio made by TI? All
3: right. If you know the answer to today's question, Now's the time to put down your calculator, pick up your device, give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling <coughs> from east of Playa del Schertz, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're listening on your submarine-mounted transistor radio in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. And as always, anyone else anywhere else may call us on the ever-undependable international line, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Church.
1: You don't have the SARS or
3: anything, do you? No. You're coughing over there. No,
2: I got nothing. I'm okay. just I'm just uh, maybe a little allergy or something. Okay. Let's talk about the first integrated circuit, the back yes. story, yes. as they say. Yes, yeah. Okay, as with many inventions, two people frequently have the same idea, and that happened with integrated circuits. Now, if you remember, we talked about Jack Kilby. He was hired in July. I forgot, it was the summer vacation that he worked through, and he was sitting alone in his Texas Instruments office. He had been hired only a couple of months earlier, and it was time for summer break, and everybody was taken off for the summer there in uh, Texas. And he didn't have any vacation time, so he just had to sit there by himself in the office. The halls were deserted. He had lots of time to think. Suddenly it occurred to him that all the parts of a circuit, not just the transistor, could be made out of silicon. Now, at the time, nobody was making capacitors or resistors out of semiconductors. And he figured, well, that could be done. So he started working on it, and that could be done built out on a single crystal wafer of silicon. So Kilby's boss liked the idea and told him to get to work on it. And by t- September 12th, which was like, this was in July, August, September, it was just a couple of months, Kilby had a working model, and on February 6th, Texas Instruments filed a patent. That was the first patent that had been filed for an integrated circuit. They called it the first solid state circuit, mm-hmm. and the entire circuit could fit on the end of a pencil wow. point. And it was shown off for the first time to other people in March. But over in California, there was another man with a similar idea. In January 1959, Robert Noyce.
1: We've also talked about him, haven't we? Yeah,
2: we've talked about him. He was working on a small fair, he was at a small fair child semiconductor startup company. He also realized that circuits be made on a single chip. While Kilby had hammered out the details of making every individual component, Noyce thought of a much better way to connect the parts. That spring, Fairchild began to build what they called unitary circuits. They also applied for a patent on the idea. Knowing that TI had already filed for a patent, Fairchild wrote a highly detailed application, hoping that it would not infringe on TI's similar device. And all that detail paid off. On April 25, 1961, the Patent Office awarded the first patent for integrated circuits to Robert Noyce. Well, Kilby's application was still being analyzed. So T.I. lost out on that first, first patent. But both men acknowledge that they had independently conceived of the idea. And that happens many times. So there you go, the backstory on the integrated circuit.
1: So everybody's getting an F so far. We don't have anybody with the correct answer. Ask the question okay. once again, and then I will ask an alternate okay. question.
2: All right. So now earlier in the show, I talked about Cecil Green, and, of course, he, <laughs> um, he, he co-founded T.I., and T.I. built a transistor radio, the Regency TR-1. What kind of transistor did it contain? And I'll give you a hint. It's not a silicon transistor.
1: That's right. Rhymes with a plant. And the other, my, the alternative, let's call this, this is Baltimore City Public School question. Okay. Okay. What does TI stand
3: for? 877-936-9333. Here's
2: a weird eBay auction item of the week. Okay. An old FBI surveillance van is for sale. <laughs> Someone in North Carolina is offering in what is described as a restored 1989 FBI surveillance van complete with listening equipment, liquid crystal display monitors, two DVD players. The Dodge Ram 350 van has low mileage, only 2300, only 23,000 miles. Yes,
1: because usually it's sitting still someplace. <laughs> it has
2: one very careful previous owner, the FBI. FBI. It has double locking doors, and it has its own toilet for long stakeouts.
1: So it's almost like a high-tech <laughs> That's camper. Right.
2: Okay, the seller, who looks like a legit guy, has dozens of good customer reviews. He claims that while the van was recently been restored since leaving the Bureau, that he actually bought it legitimately at a government auction. That's quite and that possible. The, and that the vehicle was, in fact, used for federal drug investigations. It still has surveillance tapes inside with notebooks. It includes... Rear AC controls, the ability to kill the engine from the back of the van, onboard propane tanks, an intercom, a number of electrical outlets, two extra onboard batteries. It also, they also string in manuals for all the onboard surveillance equipment, full of documentation to show that the van is legit. It'll come in handy if the police wonder what you're doing. So here's the thing: this, this. Can you imagine going around with an old FBI surveillance? I would van? love
0: it. I
1: would definitely love it. Okay, this hey. is the
2: deal: the current bid is at eleven thousand dollars. Twenty-seven people, you may be able to buy this thing yourself.
1: You know, it's <laughs> funny. I went to the car show in Baltimore this past fall, winter, and uh, they had. I came came across this this uh, suburban SUV and was all tricked out. And I asked about it. I said, "Oh, this vehicle." Uh, used to be the FBI or the uh, Secret Service vehicle that Jeb Bush used during the campaign, and the government is auctioning. Well, they're selling it. This uh, legitimate uh, broker bought it in the in the private sector, and he was he was uh, taking bids on this thing. It was in the I don't know, close to you know six figures they wanted for this wow. vehicle. Full armored. It was really cool. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. On the web at stratford.edu.
0: Oh, beautiful.
3: Far heroes proved. In liberating strife.
0: In the next 3 years there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed from certifications to bachelors and even masters degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well equipped labs and real life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges and Stratford If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Shirts of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk organized cybercrime. Yeah. Evolution of the mafia. Now... We always think of organized crime as, you know, a mafia. It's a good family. You stay in the family. It goes from generation to generation. <laughs> the America kind of,
1: and, yeah. No. Yeah, you,
2: mm-hmm. know, you know, there were five organized crime families in uh, New York, you know, they and they, they have a tradition that carries on. But it turns out that cybercrime networks uh, are like loosely, org- loosely structured organizations that sort of come together for a while, and then they have a target, and then they – disappear and they mm-hmm. might reformulate later later on these informal cybercrime networks together cause about 445 to 600 billion billion dollars worth of harm every year mm. i mean that's a pretty good net take it is. isn't it 40, 445 to 600 billion dollars a year i mean that's mafia that's a, that's mafia scale
1: it is for sure
2: now cyber criminals work in loose organizations, and they and they and they depend on the kind of, you know, the kind of project they're going after. Now normally they'll have a relationship with each other through these chat groups, um, and they'll just decide to team up if they've got complementary skills. But they're not multi-year, multi-generation. They're not sophisticated groups. They just sort of link up on the internet, and that kind of linkage on the internet also provides a certain degree of anonymity. Now organized. Hy- Cybercrime networks are made up of hackers, come together because they have functional skills, you know, like like for instance, uh, maybe there's somebody that's pretty good at password encryption and another one can code in a specific programming language and say, hey, why don't we work together and then we can go after this particular hack.
1: Whereas the regular mafia just breaks your kneecaps. That's they right. They don't have any specific skills.
2: That's right. These guys have, these guys have very, 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 you know, techie skills and uh-huh. they sort of work together in a complementary way. Now, in some of the bigger cases there there might be a core group of hackers that know each other very well. Maybe they've worked together, they know each other as they say in real life IRL, and they also and but and they will recruit other people who will augment the network. They might be for what they call money muling, the people who mm-hmm. actually collect the money and have to put it in the bank, they're the ones that are most vulnerable to getting arrested. They might have, uh, you know, or they might have other people that convert the information they have. They might, they might do it with merchants who can sell the information that they've gotten a hold of. Now, the Netherlands Institute for the Study of Crime and Law Enforcement reviewed 18 cases in the Netherlands in which individuals were prosecuted for cases relating to phishing. This is where you send out and you try to steal people's credentials with, like, fake emails. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they were able to see how these— networks formed and, uh, and were organized. And so this was the first sort of organized study into, uh, into the cybercrime networks. But things are going to get more difficult once we go to cryptocurrencies because cryptocurrencies, it's harder to track who's actually getting the money because it's, you know, and so it may be more and more difficult to identify these hackers. So law enforcement is going to keep, have to keep tracking in order to handle this. Properly going into the future. Drone fireworks actually began their showing. Usually we have traditional fireworks during the 4th of July, but there are many Western states that have been plagued by fires and they simply do not want to risk fires by shooting off fireworks. And so they've been using drones. Drones with LED lights on them that are all remotely controlled to make all kinds of patterns in the sky. And actually it was done in quite a few of the cities. And in fact, Travis Air Force Base in Colorado had a great drone show. And you could see that on YouTube video. It was really a lot of fun to watch that. You just, what you want to do, you can, I'll give, I'm going to give a link to it, but if you want to look it up, just go to Travis Air Force Base Drone Fireworks Show and you'll it'll take you right to it and it's quite nice it's not a bad idea i i have seen some of these drone at the at the olympics remember they had at their at the at the beginning oh, that's ceremony right. yeah. they they ibm had all these drones doing all sorts of things in the sky different patterns and everything at at the the recent olympics in uh, south korea so it's using the same technology and it's actually a good idea then i guess you just have loudspeakers do booms to make it you know, seem be, like To fireworks. make it seem like fireworks, because if it's just silent, it doesn't seem like fireworks. But, you know, they'd have to do that.
1: Just think of how many fingers that, that'll save.
2: That's, oh, that is definitely... Well, hold it. Drones do have propellers.
1: propellers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good point. <laughs> there's, there's, there do you, be, now, do you need more than one drone to do this?
2: Hundreds. Hundreds. Literally hundreds. So it's not cheap. Because every drone is a different color. So as it, as as the fireworks, you know, like they explode and you get that starburst... The starburst is made of a hundred of drones flying uh, away from each other, with with LEDs lit. So yeah, it's not you know. So you might have a thousand drones, and and then the you know and the, and then you got to worry about the, how long the batteries last. You know, and they all
1: come crashing down into
2: the crowd. So yeah, so you uh, so you know so the show can't be more than say twenty minutes because mm-hmm. that's probably about all the drones can stay up on their on one battery charge. Hidden webcams. In hotel rooms and in Airbnb rooms, this has become a problem. Yeah, that's become a problem, too. That has become a problem. So people are trying to – are worried about webcams in hotel rooms. There was – this last week, there was – they discovered a network of 1,600 webcams that were in hotel rooms that were basically streamed to a pay-per-view site – And people could look at any one of these webcams, what was going on in these hotel rooms, and the people in the hotel room had no idea. Mm. And there have also been cases of Airbnb, uh, of webcams in Airbnbs that, you know, are looking at the wrong thing. And so now the question is, how can you detect a webcam in your room? That's the question. Because now people are saying, hey, I don't want a webcam in my hotel room or in. In my bedroom at, a, at an Airbnb, so I want to detect it. Okay, so this is the steps you can go through to to detect a webcam. First of all, you can just use common sense. If like there's a smoke detector right above the bed, there are motion sensors in odd places, clock radios, you know, plants, anything that sort of looks like it just was stuck there for no good reason. That's that's a, that's a a um, a good indication. Now it turns out that a lot of these webcams they will actually, if the lights are out, they've got infrared lights that, that turn on and flood the room, but you can't see them because they're infrared.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So what you can do, the fir- first test you can do is that you can turn off all the lights, and it, well, it turns out that your that your smartphone will actually detect infrared. And so what you want to do is turn out all the lights, and you want to look around for infrared. Now, it turns out on the iPhone, the the camera on the back side has an infrared filter, so it won't work. So you have to use the the front-facing camera, and you just walk around using the front-facing camera, and you can, and you can see if you can pick up infrared. Now you can test your smartphone whether it picks up infrared. What you want to do is you get like an infrared remote control and see if you can see the little infrared light in that infrared remote control. That's the that's the first thing that you can do. Check for that infrared. Now the second thing you you can do is use is look for a reflection off of the optics. Have you ever seen, you know, you take a picture, you get that red eye effect where the, yes. where, where the eyes just reflect back. So it turns out that light goes into the lens, bounces off the retina, comes back out and is refocused, and it basically goes back to the same point where the light came from. So you, with the light still out, you can turn on the flashlight of your smartphone and you can go around and look for any any retroreflections that it might be around the room and you and you'll be able to see a, see an optical system quite easily that way just walk around with the lights out and look for any retroreflection coming back to you and you want to put the phone very close to your to your eyes so that the ret- ret- retroreflection comes right back to your eyes and that's a very very good way to look for an optical system. Now you can also because a lot of these systems especially in Airbnb they'll, they'll hook the webcam up to, the uh, the Wi-Fi network. So once you're logged onto the Wi-Fi network, and you can do a scan of every of anything that's on the Wi-Fi network, and quite frequently the webcam webcams are you you can identify them because they'll just be named webcam. And, uh, and a nice program to use is FING, F-I-N-G, F-I-N-G, and you just you download that. Once you're logged on to the Wi-Fi network, it will scan the network and give you a list of all the IP addresses that are there and the name of the device and so you can see if there's a, a, a webcam uh, you know, on the network. Now, you can also – it turns out that webcams also emit um, – <clears throat> webcams and also microphones emit magnetic fields. They also have some electromagnetic interference. So there are several hidden camera apps that you can download, and they will use the magnetic sensors in the smartphone as well as the electromagnetic sensors in the smartphone, and you can walk around the room. Now, these hidden camera apps are available from $299 to $499. You've got to pay for those. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I don't think it's worth it. I think this flashlight is probably the best way to go. Then if you re- – now, if you really are worried about something super sophisticated, they the, – the webcams don't connect to um, the Wi-Fi network. They actually have their own radio frequency and they send it out to somebody else and there's a, there's a, there's a radio frequency receiver someplace else. This would be more like for, for high-tech spying. But you could buy an RF scanner. That's around $150. I'm thinking that's overkill because we're, we're talking about kind of amateurish stuff going right. on here. I wouldn't worry about that. But those are just a few of the things you can do to make certain that you don't have a webcam in your hotel room. There are new rules of communicating in the digital world. Mm-hmm. You know, Connecting with people is a lot easier, but, but you have to follow the correct rule.
1: Yes, you do. There's always otherwise, a big but.
2: Otherwise, people will... Be upset with you. For instance, do not randomly FaceTime people.
1: Oh, yeah. If
2: you want to FaceTime, you must either send a text or call first.
1: You could catch people in a variety of compromising That's right. situations. And they, and they just answer
2: it and don't realize it's FaceTime, and there they are in the buff.
1: <laughs> or in the can. Or on the can
2: <laughs> or somewhere. Okay, the other thing is on when you text, never – Just answer with one word, like never say, okay, or LOL. Those are conversation killers.
1: It also seems, um, I don't know, keep going. Oh, no.
2: If you respond with one word, you're basically saying, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Passive
1: aggressive. Yeah, it's it's Mm -hmm. just like
2: shutting down the conversation. Exactly. So you've got to say more than that, not just one word. Very important. Now, if someone you know comments on your photo or video that you posted – you should respond to them and say thank you. You should just not yes, ignore it. I
1: think that's common courtesy. Okay,
2: if someone communicates with you in one form of communication, like by email or by you know WhatsApp or by Skype, you should respond to them in the same form. I agree. So, like if they email you, you don't Facetime them back. You email them back. And also, this is really bad. You know, if you post something on Facebook, don't like your own posts.
1: That's really
0: people hate that. That's just that is tacky. Yes, awful.
2: Even tackier is do not ask people to like your stuff.
1: Oh, that's awful. Do not you ask for and likes. That, doesn't that automatically happen when you start a page on Facebook, or do you have to actually enable that command?
2: Yeah, you have to. You have to enable yeah, the command, and you don't. You, but you don't want to ask for likes. And the other thing is, if somebody sends something to you. Respond right away. Don't take hours. Like if somebody sends you a text message, answer it right back. Don't take hours and hours to respond because people don't like that. No, they don't. And also, when you call someone, you don't actually have to leave a voicemail because they'll see your number. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And we want you to go to the Stratford University website. That'd be www.stratford.edu. Check out all of our programs in healthcare, culinary arts, hospitality, IT, software engineering, business. And tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech.
1: Talk radio. That's it for this week. See you next week for more Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM.